think a lot of people know much more about security than they give themselves credit for. You think that it's something that happens to other people, so security breaches is something you see on the news, but it's not something that will happen to you. It's not necessarily outrunning the tiger, but it's about outrunning your slowest friend. I find training developers actually to be much harder than regular employees because there's a certain amount of arrogance associated with, I already know this or I'm smarter than this. It's really hard to get past that shield of, you're wasting my time. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybeat, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeat.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. So welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning back in to The Secure Developer. Today we have with us Masha Sedova from Elevate Security. Welcome, Masha. Thank you so much for having me. Can I ask you to just introduce yourself a little bit and Elevate Security? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the security space for 16, 17, 18 years. I've lost count at this point, but it's a passion of mine for as long as I can remember. I started in a very traditional space, mostly computer forensics and doing cybercrime analysis. But over the course of my career, I became obsessed with this idea of what it would look like if we could get people to want to do security instead of have to. And why don't people want to do security? And so I started merging my passion for computer security with the study of behavioral science, which is the study of how people do things and why they do things and uh, habit change. And I started applying that into my work um, initially while I was running a team called Security Engagement at Salesforce. And in that role, I had the ability to be responsible for people's security behavior in general employees as well as developers as they applied to creating secure code and fixing bugs in code, and also to customers and getting them to adopt secure features in the Salesforce platform. And I got to do that for a phenomenal five years, and I, and I built this amazing team. And uh, from there, I wanted to take a lot of my learnings and apply it to other companies and share what I had learned and best practices. And so that took me to starting my own company, that I've co-founded with um, a fellow security engineer named Robert Fly. And we started Elevate Security at the beginning of last year. And it's been an amazing ride so far. And what we are focusing on is creating a platform that can measure, motivate, and educate employees to be the strongest link in security, uh, however that looks like in different organizations. So really getting employees to understand their role and be able to be advocates for security in their organizations. That's cool. That definitely is a, a worthy goal uh, and not an easy one at that, I yeah. guess. How did you even get to uh, into security in the first place, like into that forensics part? And Yeah, I love the idea of there being a group of good guys and there being a group of bad guys and being able to defend the good guys on a regular basis against an evolving threat. No two days are ever the same. So... It was an incredible application of a standard computer science degree into one that had much more of a dynamic attacker-defender landscape. And then when you start including the human factor in there, I was all the way in. 
I think security definitely has a certain uh, mystique to it from from the outside. If you talk about the good and evil, you know, and around the uh, the security attributes there, when you get into the the weeds of it, there's just that much more complexity of it. It's not quite what you see on the uh, on the movies. Yeah, you know, I actually think that the mystique of security doesn't do the security field a lot of good. I think a lot of people know much more about security than they give themselves credit for. And they write it off and say, I don't understand this whole complex security thing. In fact, our ability to recognize threats and when we're being psychologically manipulated to be able to give up information that isn't necessarily public information, a lot of people have intuitions around that and have experience in their life to figure out what's what's good and what's not. And with some basic tools and support to be able to understand sort of where attacks can come from and how you can defend yourself, think a lot more people can be much more effective at security and, and really should give themselves much more credit than they give themselves right now. So do you think the reason that people, or maybe the core, or one of the core reasons that people make insecure decisions or you know kind of make security mistakes is indeed some sort of like self-assessment or self-appreciation, I guess, of their skills? Maybe I will just even kind of ask this a little bit broadly, mm-hmm. you know, if you had to sort of simplify down something quite complex. Now, why is it that you think people don't apply security well, right? Kind of make insecure decisions. Yeah, I think there's quite a few reasons, but the one that I see most often is people think that security doesn't apply to them. So what that looks like is, let's say I, I'll choose not to put on my seatbelt because I think I'm a better driver than everyone else and I'll never get into a car accident, right? When in fact, you may not be in control of all those circumstances and it's always better to put on your seatbelt for, for safety's sake. So same thing with security. You see, you think that it's something that happens to other people, so security breaches is something you see on the news, but it's not something that will happen to you. Most people get desensitized to some of the things that they have access to that's of value. Even if you handle really critical information on a regular basis, it can become normalized, and you may not realize that that information that you have access to, whether or not it's emails or code or personal information of customers, that could fetch a really nice price on the black market. And there are people in the world that are quite motivated to get access to that data. And for many people, just being able to understand that they are in fact a target and that they do have access to things that are of interest. And if they don't take some basic precautions and have a baseline vigilance about their work, they will absolutely be the easiest target and will make the next headline. And the trick with security, <laughs> it's not necessarily outrunning the tiger, but it's about outrunning your slowest friend, which is it's a little bit ruthless. <laughs> uh, but hackers are inherently lazy. They want to go for the easiest target. So just don't be the easiest target, and you're pretty good. Unless, of course, it's a Government-sponsored agency. <laughs> yeah. In which case, that's a different conversation. There, there are some entities that you know that that rule doesn't apply to them. Yeah, I talk about that a fair bit as well. Like the notion that you just need to be better than 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 the next one, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of the next company. And funny enough, I guess we do that in the real world, right? We put these uh, stickers on alarm systems that don't exist just to make a thing. It's like, oh, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll go to the next person who clearly doesn't have right. at least an alarm sticker, you know, right. maybe not an alarm system either. Yeah. Uh, or those components. How how do we remind them though? I mean, I, we think about security and there's no there's no natural feedback loop, right? It doesn't hurt until it hurts really badly. How do we keep it in people's psyches or like how do we mm-hmm. how do we not get them to to forget and, and realize that it might happen to them? Yeah. So 
you're getting to really interesting questions. How do we perceive risks and threats? And we perceive risks when it's immediate, it's imminent, it feels immoral. There's a study on this, but the idea is it's in front of us or I know it's about to happen, or I've just recently seen it happen, so I can recall it in, in my mind. So when we watch the news, we think occurrences on the news happen much more often than they actually do. Mm-hmm. But the nature of the news is that they don't actually happen that often, which is why they've made the front yeah, pages, yeah. right? Otherwise it wouldn't be newsworthy. Yeah, exactly, it wouldn't be news. And so security, in order for us to realize that it it is as ubiquitous as it really is, is I think it's on the responsibility of security teams or people who have access to this information to start disseminating it to people who are affected. And what that looks like in practice is if you're, let's say, an enterprise with a security team, it's important to show the incidents that you had to respond to and share it with, let's say, developers who are writing your applications and say, you know, we had to defend this app against an onslaught of hackers, and either it worked really well because you developed it perfectly and securely, please keep doing that because this was the impact of your work, or this led to an incident and a breach because it wasn't written securely or wasn't tested appropriately. And so now we actually have this case on our hand. Most developers that I talk to specifically don't actually believe security is an issue that happens at their company. They don't think it's real. So if you could spend the time to prove to them that it is real, they would absolutely prioritize their work and they would understand that they're fixing something that's worthwhile. But it's not priority because they don't actually think it's a real problem. And so I think that feedback loop that you were mentioning earlier is absolutely something that we have to consider sharing a lot more of which is, I would say, not a practice that security teams are great at. The partnership with PR teams also make it really difficult for security information to get shared because my experience is that PR teams often are really nervous about incident information leaking and and, Mm -hmm. and showing the company in a bad light, when in fact that should be an amazing lesson learned for people to evolve from. But often that information is locked down and said, you will never speak of this shameful incident ever again. When in fact, that's really, that's the most valuable teacher we have. Yeah, I think uh, I, I love the analogies from everything you said to the activities that happen in the world of DevOps. DevOps is all around uh, measurement and dashboards. It says, well, like one aspect, says, you know, if it moves, measure it. If it doesn't move, measure it in case it moves. And just the, the notion of, uh, I really like the idea of Attaching that to security components, I know that at Etsy at the time they created dashboards that show the simplest types of attacks, like SQL injection attacks and the likes, but just chart the numbers of them on dashboards and put them up in the main dashboards, just alongside the app time and you know just the other core components, just to show and remind people that yes, we are getting attacks, you know, many hundreds, if not thousands, of times a day, and uh, those are just the simple attacks, and you know, there's sophisticated attacks that evade around, and similar, you know. It used to be in the DevOps world that you didn't talk about failures, you didn't talk about outages. And you know, I think really around the Velocity Conference and kind of the pioneering DevOps conferences where people will come out and you know, unashamedly talk about an outage you know, and how they messed up. And, and then subsequently what they did to correct that. Uh, and security is very, very scary. I still think you know, O'Reilly is now running O'Reilly Security and they try to be more kind of inclusive in that aspect. There's a bunch of other events, you know, DevSecCon, there's others that accept that they want to do that, they want to share it, and it's still so hard, so, so hard to get somebody to come in and say, hey, we had 
you know, a failed breach or maybe a successful breach in a failed data exfiltration. Like, you know, they, they managed to get in, but they did not manage to get any data, or even a successful one, but a near miss, you know, like something where we almost uh, allowed them in. But it's just so scary to share these things. Yeah. Or when it gets shared, the information story is so neutered of any valuable insights, <laughs> right? That it it's almost as as if it's not not worth sharing at all. So I hear you, yeah. And in my experience, I've seen that organizations that do have insight in that feedback loop are much stronger for it. Because if you can't admit that you have failure, the only thing it guarantees is that you're going to have a failure. Indeed. Sweeping it under the rug doesn't uh, doesn't help. Right. So with that, actually, let's talk a little bit about your role at uh, Salesforce at the time, because I think that was a, a part of your responsibility there, right? Can you still tell us a bit about uh, what that team was or that role was? Mm-hmm. So as I was mentioning earlier, it had three components to it. The first one was general employee awareness, and this was something that applied to all of the employees um, at Salesforce, which was about 25,000 at the time. And my responsibility there was making sure that employees we're mindful of not clicking on phishing links, reporting suspicious activity, reducing malware infection rates, and being careful of social engineering attacks on the phone. From there, my role evolved into focusing on how do we create the most effective secure code in the platform, and that involved finding and fixing bugs faster. And the last one was customer support. And what I mean by that is we had features in our product that customers could turn on, things like two-factor authentication or IP range restrictions. But customers were still given the choice to turn it on, even though it protected all of their data. And from a brand perspective, obviously, if something happened to one of our customers, it looked bad on on the company, right? So it was in our best interest as well uh, to make sure that our customers were as secure as possible, even if it was on them to turn on those features. Yeah, and I think you can probably even make the argument that it's indeed an aspect of the product, kind of the usability of your security solution, and in turn, whether people actually use the right secure settings and all that is is indeed a part of your goal. So all three sound really interesting to talk about, but just given given our podcast, let's let's hone in a little bit on that second on the secure practices. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us a bit about some some examples of sort of you know good programs or, or tricks or whatever yeah. that uh, that helped out? Let me frame a little bit about one of the challenges that we wanted to solve, and which is a challenge that exists across many organizations. And that was the ratio of security professionals to developers in the organization. So the statistics I'm going to have is not uh, Salesforce-specific, but will be roughly mm-hmm. a- accurate to, to the industry. So let's say there is one security product review person for every 100 developers, which uh, might even be generous. It could be sometimes it's 1 to 200 I've seen even higher numbers than that. Mm-hmm. But that one poor security person was responsible for reviewing the code before it got shipped and signing off to say, yep, this passed our security test, it's good to go. Uh, I, I know that hackers won't get into it. And now you can imagine what are some issues that come out of this, right? Um, that doesn't scale well. There's backlogs that get introduced, bugs are found way too late in the release stage, are sent back to the developers for fixing, at which point product releases are then delayed, which puts everything else into firefighting mode. So I really wanted to focus on how do we solve this core issue? It was almost a process issue as much of an education issue, as much as a security issue. It would be fantastic if all developers everywhere knew everything there was to know about cross-site scripting and SQL injection, and be on top of their security game. 
And there are some companies that absolutely invest in that training. Uh, but it does take a lot of upkeep and maintenance and making sure that there's a lot of training and hands-on training specifically to the code base as it continues to evolve and that knowledge is shared. So in absence of that being a solution, which I actually think that if you are small, do that because it doesn't scale, but do do that for as long as you can because you give the gift of enabling developers to take this security coding knowledge wherever they go. The second thing that I think is worth considering is security for better words, should not be tacked on at the end as an assessment before a check the box before it goes out the door. It should be part of Q&A, right? In the same way that you have quality and you have dependability and you test your edge cases, so you should also test for your security edge cases. In which case, you may only need a couple of people on the team to know what it is they're looking for in that code. It could be your peer testers, it could be your um, QA engineer, but making sure at least one person on the team understood what they were checking for and could escalate before it got too late, before things were were already done and dusted. So what I focused on was identifying one security champion in every one of our Scrum teams. Most of them volunteered, some of them were voluntold <laughs> at the time, to dive into a security boot camp. So they understood for their product what were the common bugs that we saw, what were the best solutions, what were critical features that absolutely needed escalation to the security team. And this was sort of things along architecture and design, things that if you're designing anything related to crypto or authentication, please include the security team, right? There are, there's definitely a certain line where being immersed in security full-time is, is really required. And then there's a point where you don't need the security team and empowering those security champions with the knowledge of basically saying, I have tested all of our code for cross-site scripting and SQL injection and CSERF. These are basic known bugs with basic tests we can run for it, uh, run, run against it, and we know that it's good to go. So having essentially someone who traffic control, um, uh, for security say, yes, this needs escalation. No, it doesn't. To make sure that the issues that needed to get escalated were seen by the security team, that the issues that didn't need escalated weren't seen by the security team and were handled as soon as they came up so it didn't delay the process. And what we found is that teams with these type of champions, 100% of them shipped their code on time or if they had delays, none of them were security-related delays. So pushing it further upstream, so not having security be a blocker, was absolutely critical. That sounds super useful. I guess it's uh, to an extent it comes down to disseminating knowledge versus um, having tools to uh, to run it, or at least maybe the kind of the counter for it is, you know, yes, you know, kind of starting point number one is you're not going to make all developer security experts. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So acknowledge that. So you can train them and you should still kind of level up their expertise, but they're not going to become the same professionals that dedicate their careers to it. But on the flip side, you know, there is tooling and some automation for it. And I guess champions, is it fair to say they they kind of walk a line in between? Is it, you know, around scaling the the training to a subset of the individuals who have better uh, either aptitude or interest or others uh, and just willing to devote more time to it? How do you see, I guess, in that in that sequence, you've got the broader training, you've got the champions. What's the utopia there of tooling in that ecosystem, right? If you fast forward to a you know perfectly handled DevSec <laughs> type setup, DevSecOps type setup uh, in a few years' time, 
How do you see that interaction of training and knowledge versus tools, or I don't know if it's versus? Yeah. So in any capacity, whether or not it's in DevOps or educating on phishing or malware or password use, the human brain is the most fickle thing to deal with. And so getting people to care, to do it on a regular basis, when they are busy, when they are hungry, when they are hungover or tired, there's just so many things in there that is such a complex and dynamic system that if you can solve it with tools, you absolutely should. Training really should be one of your last resources because it is hard to do. Retention of just basic audiovisual content is at best 20%. So even if you have amazing content, depending on how you present it, 20%. If it's discussion-based or if you teach people by doing it, it's 80 to 90%. But then you're, you have this huge amount of effort where you have to engage people in discussions and that's an ongoing basis, right? So, yeah. And it's not like you learn one thing and you know it forever, right? So there's a lot of things fallible with training and I think we overuse it way too often. Um, so where possible tooling absolutely should exist and one of my favorite examples is password management, right? We tell people have a secure, unique password for every one of your sites and for years, decades, we didn't give anybody any tools. And all we said was, don't write it down on a sticky note. And yet it was totally impossible for all of us to remember this. So now I don't even tell people about secure practices. I said, just please download a password manager and use it. That's it. That's the only thing I educate on. And that tool has solved things that education has never been able to do. So same thing back to this conversation about secure development and secure DevOps. Where possible, tools should absolutely be implemented. The trick within, I think, the reason why we don't see it more ubiquitously is because many coding environments and code bases are very unique to every organization. And to get it totally right, to make sure that there's not false alarms, it takes a lot of on-site customization. And it's hard from a vendor space to come in and, and build a perfect set of tools for yeah. your environment that I, I can then go and resell to every other company as well. So the companies that I've seen do it best are the mammoth companies who do it, <laughs> who build it themselves in-house and build the tools custom and then deploy it custom. And that is not a solution that most organizations can afford. But there are some vendors that get pretty close, but but never never custom. Yeah, it's a good perspective. If you can automate it, you know, that's probably your most scalable, most efficient elements, but there's just so much to it, yeah. uh, including the, the personal one. We had uh, Molly Crowther from Pivotal here on the show, and she she talked about how at Pivotal they have uh, cognitive psychologists as a part of their team, uh, which is already kind of mind-blowing on its own, right? And that they uh, try to deal with the fact that in general they try to teach the developers to be very empathetic to users, you know, very trusting you know the whole setup, and also like maybe the concept of DevOps and Agile, which you know they practice in the extreme, is very, very trusting by nature, very accepting of mistakes, and introducing the mindset or trying contrasting that with the mindset of not trusting the user. Of what if an evil user comes along and does something mm-hmm. was really quite hard, and they're, they're still battling it. You know they're they're doing a good job there, but trying to instill the notion that when you introduce those kind of QA tests, right, when you yeah. when you actually run those tests, how do you Push aside for a sec your your trusting nature. Yeah. <laughs> You've just been kind of trained to do, and you know, put a bit of an evil hat on. 
I guess do you have when you've encountered that type of test, you know, and you want to be, get people even engaged or think about it? Are there do you have some some best uh, techniques on you know what gets people engaged? You know how they uh, yeah how they jump in. So the best example. This might sound a little self-serving, but the best example based on my experience is actually the very first product that we built at Elevate based on my work at Salesforce. And what we did is introduce several hackers that are on the landscape. So a hacktivist, a cyber criminal, and government-sponsored uh, hacker. And then we walked it through a group dynamic. Somebody, every individual, to go through and understand what does they have access to that is of most interest to one of these hackers. Then we asked them to put on the persona of exactly that hacker and attack themselves. So you know yourself better than any attacker ever would, but then walking through a path of like, how would I be psychologically manipulated? Do I fall for reward or curiosity or fear best? And how could that be used against me? Uh, why would it even be used against me? So understand the people who are motivated by this. And if you can do it in a way that is lighthearted and in a way that has an element of fun, it cuts through some of the seriousness of like, oh my God, I'm about to get hacked. Or, wow, someone could actually break into my code or steal this data, which is real, quite quite a reality. But I actually think that that bit of a shock and awe factor and seeing yourself or your code from the perspective of an outside nefarious hacker is one of the best ways to take away from a training or from a lecture, whatever the education methodology is, a baseline sense of paranoia and saying, this is real and I need to be vigilant and I need to know when I should turn it off and turn it on, but I, I now have this level of vigilance that I can apply to certain situations because I now know what I'm looking for. Because if you just tell me, oh, watch out for SQL injections, and you don't tell me why or who, or what it is they're trying to get at for me, the minute it's not that direction but a different one, I won't see it coming because I'm only looking at the front door and a hacker's going to go go in through the back window. But if you can teach me about the ecosystem around why does I should even care in the first place, what are the methodologies and the tools that an attacker might use, and give me the resources to come to certain conclusions on my own, I am much more capable of defending myself and my organization, but I'm also capable of writing more resilient code, creating more resilient processes, and just having much more of a sustainable, secure ecosystem. Yeah, that's a really, really good uh, tip. I actually apply this in in talks that I give around security, where I engage the audience in hacking a vulnerable application. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can go down to the like what you describe right now is is very broad, and and I can see how that can be applied to phishing or to many others. Right. But it can also apply to to just trying to break in. You know, I've got a vulnerable application. The audience mm-hmm. might sort of shout out, you know, you know, there's a cross-site scripting here. Might what might you try? And you know, I have this very unsubstantiated belief <laughs> that, uh, like, you know, for there's no hard data behind this. Yeah. That uh, that it probably helps with the retention as well because mm-hmm. you've done. I guess they did say that eighty to ninety percent retention. You know, if you got people kind of engaged in doing, mm-hmm. uh, but you have to invest in building that up. Yep, exactly. That definitely sounds like a really good tip. It sounds like you're already on it. <laughs> Um, we talked about uh, developers here, you know, by nature of this podcast and kind of the audience that listens to it. But you deal with training the the broader sort of employee population mm-hmm. as well, right? People, how do people act secure? How do you see the two differ, if at all? I mean, how would you say it's 
different to train developers versus to train everybody mm-hmm. in security? I find training developers actually to be much harder than than regular <laughs> employees because, sorry in advance for all the developers listening to this, there's a certain amount of arrogance associated with, I already know this or I'm smarter than this. And so it's really hard to get past that that shield of, you're wasting my time. In fact, it's not entirely uh, a developer's fault because I ha- would have to say most security trainings have been a waste of time for many employees and aren't respectful of people's time or intelligence. So, you know, I can't blame it entirely. But there's a certain arrogance that comes from uh, <laughs> uh, dealing with very smart, especially engineering types. And sometimes that arrogance isn't well placed. And I'll give you some examples. I've run many hundreds of phishing tests over my career. And I have found that the top group that clicks on phishing links is marketing. And then with about one degree of difference of, fish, of opening, clicking your uh, phishing links are developers. Oh. Um, marketing, I feel, is forgiven because their entire job is to click on incoming emails <laughs> and resumes and links. And I, and I get it. Like, that's fine. But developers feel like, especially if it's a well-crafted attack, I would totally see this. It's not, it wouldn't affect me. Don't like plus my machine's so locked down, right? Without understanding like the nuance of some really sophisticated pieces of malware that may be directly targeted. Yep. And so again, it won't happen to me and if it does, I would catch it in a second. And it is that arrogance that absolutely gets a lot of developers into trouble from at least my own tests. <laughs> So I think things like phishing best practices, uh, educating people on what not to click, on particular like very specific malware targeted to developers is something that is worth educating anybody on, but obviously make it role specific. I think that there is immense value in teaching developers specifically how you write better code as well. So I think Unfortunately, developers might have two doses of security, but it's not just limited to them, right? So if you're in customer support, you need to be mindful of uh, phone, phone scanning. Data. Exactly, right? So every role has additional layers of how it applies specifically to the data that they have. Yeah, indeed. I can definitely see <laughs> the uh, the developer aspects. I think you know maybe the the crowd that is worse in terms of uh, confidence in their skills, as we say, is security. <laughs> you know, probably so security people might be kind of the, uh, the next uh, the next tier up there. Yeah. Uh, although hopefully security consciousness, they're a little bit higher up. Yeah, not, uh, not going to work for that one. Yeah. <laughs> not always. Yeah, and I guess I would also add that the developers probably have a, a bigger sphere of influence. You know, If you compromise a developer, you can compromise their code, which in turn compromises their users. Yeah. Uh, and it's a big deal. And we've had some big attacks like that with Xcode Ghost and with a, a bunch of Chrome extensions where malware in those uh, is becoming bigger and bigger issue. So I can definitely sort of see the uh, preventing that education or I can see the attitude keeping the knowledge out. Yeah. Uh, but then subsequently the damage uh, can be multifold. So definitely worth doing the the broader security education, not just the security coding, yeah. to keep developers' machines, you yeah. know, keep themselves uh, secure. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite avenues of attack that I've seen, uh, red teams particularly, so people who are hired to break in, what they're good guys, get paid to hack in. But their favorite way of attacking developers is going through a lot of engineering docs. There's a lot of things documented around, this is how we check in code, and this is our testing process. They'll uh, hop on group channels, they'll compromise one one developer's laptop, hop on a 
chat channel, uh, scroll through history where they'll be like, oh yeah, the credentials to this site is here. So you're sharing internal and thinking you're internal and safe and you have your whole architecture and your process of how you check in code, your onboarding docs essentially for your new engineers. You download one of those, you go through some of your chat logs, you get all the appropriate credentials, assuming you're not handling them correctly, which tends to be most of the case. You put those two things together you don't need the most sophisticated hacker in the world to be able to to pivot from that point on. Yeah, indeed. So I think that's in general this uh, this conversation is a really good point when we talk about secure development or securing developers. I would say ninety nine percent of the conversation comes down to secure coding, mm-hmm. uh, but an area that is that is very lightly discussed is developers securing themselves and just sort of securing their environments and not falling for those because developers are early adopters. I mean you. We install stuff from the web mm-hmm. day in and day out. You know the number of development pipelines that pipe into sudo bash, which is terrible. Like downloading something from the web and just pipe it blindly into some shell script is uh, is quite troubling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of those best practices around securing our own systems, our own environments, mm-hmm. uh, is really really key. Yeah. So yeah. happy to uh, to have the chat. I think there's probably whole rooms of. There's probably room for whole sets of best practices mm-hmm. uh, around uh, around developers securing their environments. Yeah, although I I would still say that my favorite tips apply to developers as much as anybody else, which is you know manage your passwords securely. Back to the password management thing, and make sure that they're all different. Please install two-factor authentication on every piece of software you have. It doesn't matter if your passwords get stolen in that case. I appreciate that it can introduce additional complexities when you're trying to test, but if you have two-factor built in from an API perspective, just just find ways of including that because that is one of the best ways to defend against hackers. And so if you can create, uh, if you you can have 2FA on as many applications, especially the most critical ones. And then the third one is more of a mindset thing. It really is know that your internal environment is not any safer than the internet. And so be careful what you post. And if you do post things, make sure it's locked down. Um, And the people who see it are only the people who need to see it and nobody else. Yeah, definitely sound advice. So, I mean, I think you gave me the uh <laughs> you know sort of great favorite here <laughs> yeah. uh, to tee up which I you know I often kind of like to close off with sort of the the question around uh, around a favorite practice uh or a, or a pet peeve I yeah. guess in it uh, yeah. would you say that's also kind of your pet peeve in it or do you no. have what what is your if there's one thing that annoys you <laughs> or yeah. that you kind of want people to uh, to address uh, that you have sort of a security pet peeve yeah. what would that be my pet peeve has two audiences to it the first one is security teams who always say users are the weakest link and i personally think that's totally inaccurate i think we as security professionals have done a terrible job of empowering other people our employees developers general users to know how to defend themselves in the organization, and it's on the security team to do a better job. But then the flip side of that, for developers or for any employee in any company, say, well, security's not my job. There's a security team that is paid to go into work every day. And that is where a lot of things go wrong as well. If you remember like the earlier thing we talked about where there's like one to a hundred people a security person can't possibly cover everything scale. that's happening. Yeah? They can't know all the things, the ins and outs of what you look at and you do on a regular basis. And they don't know what normal is and not normal is in the weeds of your daily work. And so it's everybody's responsibility to say, 
this is weird, right? There's something going on with my phone, my machine, my browser, and it's worth me escalating it and, and finding help because the longer you wait, the longer you allow, say, an attacker to move around on the network. So knowing that everyone is a vital part of this equation is really critical. Yeah, definitely. It's everybody's problem. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot for all the great insights here. I think we can uh, we can continue talking here for a while here, but I think we're already kind of at time. If people want to find you on uh, the internets or mm-hmm. uh, or check out uh, Elevate uh, Securities kind of offerings here, where where can they find you? Yeah, uh, so our website is elevatesecurity.com, and we have a blog there that we uh, occasionally post insights around the space. I'm also on LinkedIn, Masha Sadova, and on Twitter at Mod Masha. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Masha, for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been great. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies given by top experts in the field. 